give my heart to? Are you gonna break it? If I give my hand to? Are you gonna take it? If I give my life to you, are you gonna take it and break it into a million crystals? Make me desperate for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor at large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Hugh Axton in the film Atlas Shrugged. Who is John Galt? Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. I remember Hugh Axton very well. I very, you know, this is interesting because there's sometimes a psychic connection between different films. And I don't know if you know from my filmography, David, but I did a little movie in Mexico, Durango, Mexico, called One Man's Hero. And there were so many people, both in the cast and in the crew, that did One Man's Hero that also did Atlas Shrugged. Uh, it was, I, I felt it was like some sort of wormhole. In the, in the t- now, that's not a comment on Atlas Shrugged, but it was like a wormhole because we ended up on the set basically talking about that one movie we did like 15 years ago, nice. which, was, which was a chaotic disaster. Always that, nice when uh, you can see some familiar faces in an unfamiliar place. Yeah, it was. It, that was the movie where we ate the live bug tacos. Well, I didn't eat them, but in Durango, Mexico, that was the specialty on the street was the live bug tacos. Well, very, very cool. Sounds like it was a memorable experience. <laughs> it was overall. to be missed. Yeah, it was to be missed. <laughs> well, speaking of movies that aren't to be missed, Stephen, uh, our upcoming film, The Primary Instinct, we've been working hard at it. Oh, man. People may be wondering, why hasn't there been a new episode? Well, first of all, we're here. We're back. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we are, we're trying to put out the Tobolowsky files as often as possible, but we are also hard at work on The Primary Instinct, which is a film version of the Tobolowsky files. Uh, and Stephen, you've seen, I would venture to say, thousands of movies in your lifetime. So you've, yep. you've seen this one. Yep. Uh, how does it stack up to the thousands of movies? In your Clearly lifetime? the best. Clearly uh, obviously. The best. obviously. It, is, <laughs> it is superlative. It's even better. Than Atlas Shrugged. I know that is a difficult achievement, but uh, somehow I think we've accomplished it. Well, I, I think I think it's amazing considering how much work we had to do and the amount of time we put in. How much work you did, David? It was really remarkable. I mean, I was what I flew to Seattle about five times, and for all sorts of little bits and pieces, we were going to put in the movie and interviewing and all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think the entire film from launch of Kickstarter to, uh, you know, the final movie being delivered is probably going to be around seven or eight months. So uh, it's very, very quick. Um, Part of the movie is this interview segment we filmed. um, And it's going to kind of be a bookend for uh, some of the portions of the movie. Uh, And, you know, I asked you a ton of questions. I interviewed for like three hours, Steve. I would say four, Dave. (laughs) I fly up to Seattle. I have no idea what's waiting for. David says he's going to ask me a few questions. I was sitting in that chair. For four hours, I mean, it was like the Secret Service or something. It it, It was not easy. But I have to say the one question you did not ask me, and this is a question I'm asked a lot of the time is what is the most special moment I have ever had on stage? 
And I'm going to answer it now, David, in case you want to use it in the movie. It's a difficult question to answer because when you are an actor, one of the hardest things to do is act. So every time you're on stage, it's special. But I have one performance that comes to mind every time I think through my career. And it wasn't the first time I was on Broadway. It wasn't the first time I had a leading role. It was actually before I had a career. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman at SMU and was cast in my second main stage play. A main stage is theater department lingo for this is a big deal. Big play, big budget performed in the big theater. It was a production of Albert Camus' Caligula. This play took place in the darkest days of the Roman Empire, and our production was shocking. It was filled with semi-nudity, semi-violence, and semi-decadence on a level never before experienced at a Methodist university. It was an extravaganza in every way. First of all, there were three giant interconnected elevated stages built on raking angles that slanted toward the audience. The designer said this would create the impression of a world out of balance. And to heighten the effect, the playing surface would be covered with mylar. Mylar has the ability to make anything existential, even balloons. The mylar rap stage reflected every character that walked on it. It would even reflect the audience watching the play. I thought this was a terrifying design choice. I had acne at the time and knew there was nothing scarier than a big mirror. Our director said the production was going to be postmodern. That is an artistic concept based on the notion that we've already seen everything beautiful there is to see, so now we need to look at things that are ugly. From the back of the house, the set looked like big solar panels, and on opening night when the stage lights came up full, the audience gasped, not from the shock of the design, but because they left their sunglasses at home. At SMU, freshmen in the theater department usually move furniture and manage the props. I was thrilled to get one of my first speaking roles. I played someone called the Intendant. Now, as many listeners to the podcast know, over my career, I've developed this formula that predicts how good a part will be by what kind of name the writer's given to us. So two names, like Ned Ryerson, Sandy Ryerson, is good. One name with a job description like Sheriff Charlie, that's worse. One of the lower rungs on the thespian totem pole is a part that just has a job description, like hotel clerk. In Caligula, I had a rare subcategory of the inconsequential part. As the intendant, I had a role with no name and a job description that no one has ever heard of. And what's worse, when you put the intendant on a resume, it looks like you misspelled something. But beggars can't be choosers. I put it down, and for years afterwards, casting directors or potential agents would look twice and ask, the intendant? What's an intendant? I didn't care. I was 18 and happy to speak my 10 words in Act 1. Yes, I counted words back then. When you have a part that small in a production this huge, they sometimes will ask you to do another inconsequential role later in the play to justify casting you in the first place. And I was happy to do it. It meant more stage time for me. 
So after I finished my duties as the intendant, I ran down to the dressing room to prepare for my second part, known only as slave boy. This is another role you should not put on your resume. The name slave boy actually makes the part sound better than it was because I was one of many. There were about a dozen slave boys. We were united by the insignificance of our part, but more importantly, we were united by our look. All slave boys looked alike. We were bald, covered with silver body paint, and wore nothing but a silver G-string. Obviously, our director had spent many lonely hours at Chippendales. The look didn't suit me. You see, I wasn't bald back then. I had tons of hair, so I had to wear a bald pate, which is this thin, dome-shaped piece of rubber stretched to cover my head and attached with spirit gum. Spirit gum is a theatrical glue invented decades ago, probably as an army experiment. It has the ability to attach false mustaches and melt human flesh at the same time. Because I had so much hair back then, the bald pate was bumpy, so I looked like a young triceratops. The director came back to check me out during dress rehearsal. He shook his head and pointed at my legs. He told me I had to shave them to be a slave boy. Slave boys had to have smooth legs. He went to get me a razor. One of the first things I learned about college was there was something basically creepy about the theater. I was not an expert in shaving my legs and was unaware that you needed a cooling off period after shaving before you apply an alcohol-based silver body paint. You could hear the screams for miles. In the big climax of the play, all of the slave boys revolt and murder Caligula, played impressively against all odds by our artist-in-residence, Ray Burke. The method of Caligula's death was dramatic. We slave boys were to surround him, then beat him to death with our fists. It was supposed to be primitive, animalistic, and a foreshadowing of the worst excesses of the Bravo channel. Blood and flesh would fly into the air to the horror of the audiences. So, how did we accomplish this? Stage magic. What the audience did not know was that each of us slave boys had a wax cylinder hidden in our fists filled with Cairo syrup and red food coloring, which is the standard recipe for stage blood. It was a matter of science. The heat from our hands would slowly melt the wax, and it was time for the beating. The wax would fall apart. The blood would explode into the air all over the stage, all over Caligula. The flying pieces of bloody wax would look like flesh. We used Cairo syrup blood for the first performance. It was great. It was pretty gory. But the student designers weren't satisfied. They thought it didn't have the right look or viscosity to properly horrify the audience. So, without consulting a physics professor, they changed the formula. They made up a new batch of blood substituting Cairo syrup with KY jelly. The first time the new formula was used was on stage for our second performance. Here is where I had my special moment on stage. When it came time for killing, all of the slave boys circled Caligula. The wax started to soften in our hands. We began beating him to death. The KY jelly blood flew all over Ray Burke, 
and all over us. It flew all over the Mylar stage. As we continued the savage beating, we became aware that we were moving as a single unit down the rake stage toward the audience. Twelve slave boys and a dead Caligula sliding into oblivion, and we were picking up speed. It was a matter of science. The normally slick mylar covered with the slicker KY jelly eliminated friction and turned the entire stage into a particle accelerator. As slave boys, we were already slick, bald and covered with silver body paint. It was Newton's second law of motion. Force equals mass times acceleration. We had become a slip and slide. The interesting thing about catastrophe is that it often grows in levels of recognition. For me, the first was the recognition that I was sliding. The second was the realization that all of us were sliding. And the third was the realization that we were headed into the audience and nothing could stop us. On stage, time ceased to exist. Ray Burke was the first to take on the disaster, and he yelled out, Turn out the lights! Turn out the goddamn lights! Of course, clear heads now realize that that wouldn't have helped us at all. We still would have slid off the stage. We just would have slid in the dark. I looked out at the audience and sensed that they were experiencing the disaster in waves as well. First, they laughed when we started slipping and falling. Then they saw we were sliding toward them. That drew a respectful silence. About the time Ray Burke cried out, Turn out the lights! Turn out the goddamn lights! They realized we could not stop. Panic set in. People on the front rows began to rush for the exits. A few brave ones stayed behind. They stood up and rushed forward to try to keep us from falling into the orchestra pit. We were unified by a wave of desperation. Then everything changed. It was every slave boy for himself. The slaves on top of the pile thought they could crawl over the bodies of the slaves beneath them to get to the safety of the non-KY jellied area of the upper stage. Well, that didn't work. They just slipped on the bald heads and silver body paint of their brethren. Each failed attempt made the sprawl for safety more urgent, more frantic, and this only spread the KY jelly over a wider area. The downstage cluster of slave boys were only about three feet from falling into the orchestra pit or tumbling into the front rows, when miraculously, the last man upstage, which is the top end of the pile, reached under the floating upper stage and grabbed onto a steel girder, and we stopped sliding. The whole pile of us. Then he yelled out, Crawl over me! Crawl over me! It's the only way out! That drew an ovation from the audience that did not expect to see such an act of self-sacrifice this evening. We crawled, one by one. The audience was silent, mesmerized. You could cut the tension with a knife. Each one of us got applause as we climbed over the bodies and got to the KY Jelly Free Zone on the upper level and carefully tiptoed off the stage. When a bloody, furious Ray Burke was finally able to stagger off the stage, he got a standing ovation. That would have been a good place to end the story. But catastrophes have a mind of their own. They don't tend to follow a neat three-act structure. This disaster kept going. One of our fellow freshman actors, Don Pitts, was not a slave boy. He had a real part, even though he didn't have a real name. Don played the old patrician. 
the old patrician was comic relief in Act 1, before Caligula murdered him. We were all jealous of Don for not having to shave his legs. While the catastrophe was going on upstairs, he was sitting down in the dressing room, unaware, reading a newspaper, waiting for the play to end to take his solo bow. When he heard the sustained applause and cheers on the dressing room monitors, he thought the play was over and it was a big hit. He ran upstairs and scurried to his spot backstage left, just as Ray Burke made it off stage right. Don ran onto the empty stage to take his bow. He hit the KY Jelly wet spot and flew, and I mean flew, into the orchestra pit. The audience shrieked and stood nervously until Don climbed up from the bottom of the pit and waved at the crowd. The audience cheered once again. I'm not suggesting a causal link, but it is interesting that Don left acting and became a lawyer. The next night, we went back to Cairo Syrup Blood, and there was no further incidents. The show got great reviews and was considered to be one of the most ambitious and successful productions ever attempted at the school. For years, I have remembered that night being the most extraordinary disaster I'd ever been a part of on stage. It even topped jumping through the giant cassava melon dressed as Uncle Sam a few years later at the University of Illinois. In that case, there was only one victim, me. Upon leaping from the melon, I was garroted by my microphone cord where I lost my clothes, my sense of self, and ended up walking around the stage in my underwear. My mind turns back over the details. What was it about the night on stage during Caligula that made it stand out, besides the obvious? It could have been the scope of the calamity. So many of us were in jeopardy at the same time. It could have been that we were all so young. First disasters, hard to shake. I still remember the Oak Cliff tornado from 1957 as if it were yesterday. I recently came up with a new theory. Like Einstein and his lifelong search for a singular theory to explain the universe, was the Caligula disaster remarkable because we became unified? Just as the KY jelly physically made us slave boys one mass of humanity with a common end, the catastrophe also unified the audience. It made us one. One is a powerful number. The concept that there was something called one led to the creation of mathematics. Finding ratios within one led to what Aristotle called the golden mean and what Confucius defined as the doctrine of the mean. These concepts of one led to moral philosophy and thought, symmetry in art, harmony in music. Pascal used the idea of one to predict the possibility of infinity that became the basis of modern physics. The concept of one is why the Super Bowl is so popular and why we cry at weddings. Even though I didn't know it at the time, that night on stage in Caligula, I learned something life-changing. What unified actor and audience during Caligula? Was it the fear of our falling off the stage? Now, fear is a powerful force of unity and creativity. When I was a little boy, some friends of my father took my brother and me out to a lake to learn to water ski. I couldn't do it. Every time I got in the water and gave them the thumbs up, the boat started. I was ripped out of my skis. I did the 30-mile-an-hour face plant and was dragged around the lake until I began to drown. Except for once. 
I got in the water. People on the boat started screaming at me. I couldn't figure out what they were saying. They kept pointing. I turned and saw a 10-foot alligator gar closing in on me. I screamed, go! The boat took off. I found my golden mean of balance. I was up and flying across the water. I jumped the wake. I skied on one leg. If they had a ramp, I could have taken it. I could have skied wearing a goofy head in the Disney on Water show at Coral Gables. The problem with fear being a sole unifying element is, except for the front rows, the audience for Caligula was not in danger. There were larger elements at work here than fear. Something that was hard for us to see. And it came to me the last time I was telling the Caligula story. I was in Northampton, England, at a convention for the television show Heroes. The audience wanted to hear a theater story. I told them about Caligula. They enjoyed it a great deal, and then they began asking questions. One young man asked why the audience applauded when we got off stage. I said, I guess they were happy we weren't hurt. There was a lot of suspense. No one knew what would happen until we made it into the wings. Then it hit me. The missing piece. The unifying element. I never thought of it before. The force that engulfed us all, actor and audience, was doubt. It was uncertain that any of us were going to get off of that stage. The odds were we would all slide into the orchestra pit or fall into the front row. We didn't. We were lucky. But before we had luck, we had doubt. I grew up thinking doubt was a problem. I looked for certainty everywhere, in school, in love, in my sense of right and wrong. What if that was not always true? What if I had overlooked the benefit of doubt? Throughout human history, doubt has never gotten the credit it deserves. It is a great motivator. It was probably instrumental in getting Hammurabi to sit down and write a code of 282 laws to give Babylonians a sense of order, and for Moses to present the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It was doubt that led to the birth of philosophy to try to answer the unanswerable questions. Doubt is the probable birthplace of all superstition and the reason man needed to find science to counteract it. No matter how sophisticated we get, the seed of any discovery or advance is doubt. The great physicist Richard Feynman was musing about the role of science in the realm of thought. He said, The whole of nature is always an approximation of the complete truth. In fact, everything we know is only some kind of approximation because we know that we do not know all of the laws as yet. But what is the source of knowledge? Where do the laws that are to be tested come from? It takes imagination to guess at the wonderful, simple, but strange patterns beneath them all. In a few simple sentences, Feynman was able to make science sound like art and the prospect of not knowing just another day at the office. He also may have been giving us a hint at a larger human truth. Necessity may be the mother of invention, but imagination, courage, and ultimately faith may be the benefit of doubt. 
No doubt has a dark side. It was a doubt that Moses would not return from Mount Sinai that led to rebellion and the golden calf. It was doubt that took promise out of the promised land and condemned the Hebrew people to wander 40 years in the wilderness. And at the dawn of modern times, doubt hindered exploration. People were afraid of sailing off the end of the world. It was doubt that made musicians in the 18th century avoid writing and playing a tritone which is a chord made of three adjacent hold notes, in that it could summon the devil. To find modern composers who did not fear the devil's interval, look no farther than George Harrison and the Beatles in Blue Jay Way. Yeah, it's creepy. On a much smaller scale, my early life was shaped by doubt. I was seven. I spent much of my free time dedicated to fulfilling the mission statement of the Dangerous Animals Club, meaning Billy Hart and I were down at the creek looking for snakes. Billy casually warned me that we had to go home soon. The sun was going down and we had to stay away from the creek at night. Why? I asked. Billy looked around, made sure we were alone, and said, That's when woo-woo comes out. Who is woo-woo? I asked. Billy said Woo-Woo was a demented person that escaped from Terrell. Sidebar. Terrell was the town in Texas that was home to the state mental hospital. Whenever parents or teachers had to deal with difficult students, there was always the threat of sending them to Terrell. Even though this ploy was highly effective, I recognize it would not be tolerated by current standards of civilization. I was apparently the last kid on our block to have heard about Woo-Woo. Down at the fishing hole, all the boys knew everything about him. They told me he lived in the bushes around the creek. One of the boys said he thought he saw him once, under a bridge. Another said Woo-Woo had reddish hair and wore a dirty T-shirt. He got the name Woo-Woo because he couldn't talk. Those were the only syllables he could utter. I tried to imagine how difficult life was for Woo-Woo, living in a creek Unable to care for himself, he couldn't even ask for a Coke at the 7-Eleven. He could only ask for a woo-woo, and I don't think those existed. My sympathy departed when one of my friends told me about the event. The event that brought woo-woo his fame. A couple from the high school were out on a date. They pulled off the road by the creek to make out. That meant kiss each other. A lot. The girl heard a noise outside the car and something that sounded like someone calling, woo woo She was terrified. Her boyfriend told her to stay calm. He would go take a look. He got out of the car. Nothing. He didn't come back. She waited. More nothing. Then she heard a knock on the rear window. 
She ducked down and hid behind the back seat. She kept hearing the knock. She hid behind the car seat all night, afraid to move. When the sun came up, she ran out of the car only to see her boyfriend's body hanging from a tree above the car. The knocking on the back of the window was his foot gently tapping the roof. Why ran home and I asked mom and dad if they had ever heard of woo-woo? They hadn't. Mom wisely added that maybe I shouldn't be hanging out with boys who would tell stories like this. I can't say I believe the story. But on the other hand, it could have been true. I had my doubts. The legend of woo-woo was enough to keep me away from the creek at night, which was probably a good idea anyway. As I grew older, I was surprised that even though no one had personally seen woo-woo, his story lived on, terrorizing yet another generation of children, keeping them away from the creek at night, and especially discouraging teenagers from making out at Keys Park. The story of woo-woo began to make sense to me in a new way. Doubt created fear for a purpose. In this case, it was to keep children safe in a world without nannies. What surprised me was the grip the woo-woo story still had on me. When I went to college, the story changed nouns and pronouns and resurfaced in another form. People in the theater department started talking in quiet, cautious tones about Crazy Man. He lived in the dry cleaning shop on Hillcrest, across from the drama department. No one had ever seen Crazy Man, but we all accepted the stories of him roaming the streets at night with a degree of certainty. For whatever reason, we crossed the bridge of faith and entered into belief. I wore cotton in those days. I depended on my mother to do my laundry, but I got a very real knot in my stomach when my girlfriend Beth asked me to take one of her dresses to the dry cleaners. Beth's friend Louise was over at our apartment. She looked at me and said, Bones. Bones was Louise's nickname for me. Bones, are you really going over there? Sure, I guess. Why not? Well, you know why not, Louise said. If you see Crazy Man, just run. Run. I'm sure it's going to be fine, Louise, I said. I walked Beth's dress over to the shop. I handed it to the woman who owned the place. She was very friendly and charming. She told me the dress would be ready the day after tomorrow. I felt considerably lighter as the weight of weeks of false mythology slipped off my back. I thanked her and headed for the door. In those days, I was not terribly familiar with dry cleaners. I turned back to the woman and asked her if I needed a ticket or something to pick up the dress. She said it wasn't necessary. The receipt she gave me was good enough. I thanked her. Then I froze. In that moment, I saw the curtain behind the woman move. Now, it could have been a back door opening and closing. It could have been the whisper of a breeze from a window somewhere. But whatever it was, the curtain moved. It was almost as if someone unseen was listening to our conversation. I headed back to our apartment. Louise was still there. She said, you made it back alive, Bones. So tell me, tell you what, Louise, you know, did you see him? No, all I saw was a woman who ran the place, and she was very nice. Louise stared at me like a prosecutor. You saw nothing out of the ordinary. No, Bones. It was nothing, Louise. Tell me, Bones. All right, 
All right. I saw a curtain move. Louise slapped her hands. Crazy man, that was him. Now, you don't know that, Louise. It was nothing, I said. Bones, look me in the eye and tell me it was nothing. Okay, I said. It was probably crazy man. Louise was wound up like the little dragon toy I had that spits barks. I knew it. I knew it. She put her hands on my shoulders. You are very lucky, Bones. Very lucky you got out of there. When will the dress be ready? Day after tomorrow, I said. Leave it. It's not worth it. Beth could get another dress. Louise, I can go get the dress. Once makes you lucky, Bones. Twice makes you a fool. Do what you have to do. I just don't want to be reading about your disappearance in the campus newspaper. Louise, if I don't come back, you'll know where to look. Louise stared at me long and hard. You've been warned. As much as I thought the whole thing was ridiculous, there was something that told me it could be true. It was one of those unexplainable, almost silent voices you hear that tell you nightmares are real. Reality is fundamentally unfair. The world often advises us with nothing more than the sound of a curtain moving in a dry cleaner shop. It's hard to know the difference between foolishness and intuition. I was not unique. The story of doubt and faith leading to dubious conclusions is the story of man. In the Talmud, there are many advisories as to how to avoid demons. It warns of taking a shirt from a butler, of handing the asparagus cup to someone other than who gave it to you, or standing in front of women coming from a funeral. All of these actions can lead to encounters with demons. Demons have been sighted when someone drank an even number of glasses of wine, two or four. It was called the cup of punishment. I think I may have experienced that one earlier this week. The existence of demons was unquestioned at the time. Very wise men set about finding ways to protect the common man from attack. Several noted that demons were sensitive to loud noises. As a result, in Talmudic times, a demon chaser could be hired to go into a newlywed's home to make noises to scare away any spirits meaning harm. It all seems like a fairy tale, except for the fact we still do it today. The ringing of church bells after a wedding had its origins not in celebration, but in chasing away demons from the young couple. The accepted belief was that demons attack those of whom they are jealous or those who are defenseless. A bride, a groom, a mourner, the sick, a Torah scholar out at night were all particularly vulnerable. Demons rushed in at times of danger or joy. The wise men warned that in that moment, a person's deeds are scrutinized as to whether he or she is worthy of divine providence. In the modern age, we don't tend to think of our antagonists as demons. We've assigned those roles to political parties, football teams, ex-girlfriends or boyfriends. Modern demons could be viewed another way. They all represent the moments we had doubt. Doubt over what we did in the past are demons of regret. Doubt about our future are the demons of anxiety. If you look at it a certain way, adulthood is the process of settling into a relationship with doubt, from buying insurance to going to therapy. 
That night on stage during Caligula was memorable for many reasons. It was also the dawn of my age of doubt. After Caligula, I knew the show did not have to go on. I knew that some beginnings had endings that never could have been planned for or even imagined. From that moment on, everything I knew was in question. My love, my career, my beliefs. It was terrifying. It was the source of my sleepless nights. Before Caligula, I would have said we are all shaped by our beliefs, afterwards, that we're shaped by our disasters. When I graduated from SMU, I wanted to be an actor. I could only be a student. I wanted to be with Beth. I wanted a home and family. She saw that as a prison. Doubt pushed us forward. We ended up accepting positions in graduate school at the University of Illinois. At least we could be together. Perhaps. I performed my last show in Dallas at Theater 3 in August of 1975. Closing night, I went out drinking with some friends who were heading for Hollywood to start their careers as actors. They said it was the only way to go. Everyone was anonymous in Los Angeles. You could become anything. It was the land of opportunity. I can't say I believed him, but on the other hand, it could have been true. I left the bar at closing time, or a little later. I headed home to Beth in the final days in our apartment. I made my way down Hillcrest about 2 a.m. when a shadow ran out in front of me. I slammed on my brakes. In the deserted road was an old man. He was toothless and had long gray hair slicked back behind his ears. He was laughing and waving a broom in the air. He stopped and pointed at me. Then he began sweeping the street in front of my car, but the broom never touched the road. He continued to sweep and laugh, and he looked up at me again and again with his tiny red eyes blazing. It was crazy, man. He was real. He was always real. The demon danced before me as my soul was weighed. Would I be worthy of divine providence? The streetlights changed from red to green to yellow, back to red. I sat in my car as crazy man laughed and danced. He pointed at me with his broom, but I was not afraid. I could wait. I could wait for him all night. I still had faith in the morning. There's a fog upon it And my friends have lost their way We'll be over soon, they said Now they've lost themselves instead That was from The Benefit of Doubt, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you've had a very busy summer, have you not? I have. I've been uh, working on the new Comedy Central show, um, Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, which we are having a big time doing. It is so much fun. All right. Well, uh, do you know when people can see you in that show? 
Yeah, I believe our air date is going to be in January. So be looking for that. It it should be extremely funny. Well, that is a long time to wait for more Tobo. I think you were also <laughs> recently in the final season of Californication. Am I right? Californication. I think that's already, yeah, that's finished being shown. It, that was really wonderful. That was, boy, we could do a whole show about that. That was, you know, David, I shot the last scene of the last show of the last episode. Uh, we had our wrap party on Saturday. Uh, David finished his his scenes on like Monday or Tuesday and I shot on Wednesday with Pam and with Evan and then they left and it was just me alone. Everyone in the cast was gone and I shot up at the Stubeg's mansion, which is Frank Sinatra's old mansion on top of the hill at Magic Hour and they called cut, rap on show, rap on series. And I got to tell you, David, there was not a dry eye around that place. Yeah, there there was not a dry anything, probably. Probably. Based on what that show <laughs> is about. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, people are probably also interested in finding out what's going on with uh, the film that we're working on. You can uh, find our project at theprimaryinstinct.com. And uh, I would dare say that at that website soon, we're probably going to set up a legit film site uh, at theprimaryinstinct.com. So uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this far in the future, when you go to theprimaryinstinct.com, you'll find a way to to get updates on what's going on. You can also check the Kickstarter updates right now at theprimaryinstinct.com to see what we've been up to. Uh, in the meantime, Stephen, where can people find uh, more of your work on the internet this week? I guess uh, good places on Facebook. What is that uh, address, David? That is um, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. And I have to say, Stephen, I have been really enjoying your postings on there recently. Uh, I, it's something I do every day. It's like a ritual. I check the Stephen Tobolowsky Facebook page just to see what nuggets of wisdom you're going to drop on us. So It's uh, funny. You know, I've been keeping these notes for years, so I'm, I'm kind of doing little stories on Facebook that probably won't turn into podcasts, but it's been a lot of fun. You know, what's funny is uh, that – you know, your ramblings typically would be regarded as that of an insane person, but because they're coming out of your mouth uh, and on your Facebook page, they uh, somehow have some kind of legitimacy. Right. So that is a fascinating process, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, seriously, though, it is very profound and moving and insightful, these updates of Stephen's posting. Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. And also Twitter, at Tobolowski. Yeah, check him out there as well. Find more episodes of the show at TobolowskiFiles.com. Thank you guys for tuning in to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We will see you guys very soon. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>